My name is Pastor Daniel. I'm one of the executive pastors here at Resurrection Church. If uh, you filled out one of those cards, the guest card or the I need prayer card, or uh, used an envelope for physical offering, uh, we have boxes around the exits and in the foyer on the way out of here. You can slip those cards in there and uh, we'll pray for you or connect with you if you're a first time guest. If you're online, all those things are actually in our chat, and so you can just do those directly inside the chat if you're joining us online. Welcome if you're online. We don't get to see you, but we love you anyways, and uh, we can't wait to see you again. A few different things that are going on in the life of our church where we just had a big staff elder retreat over the last four days, so we've been working on leadership and all sorts of fun stuff for, for about four days, so we're on a kind of a skeleton crew today. That's why we, got, we have one guy up here, um, although for those of you that really enjoy enjoy uh, when it's quieter. It's hard to get real loud with one person, so you're welcome, right? We're, uh, we're giving out breaks for people. It could be, it could be louder. He's going to strum a little louder. Uh, last night and over the course of this weekend, there was a Teen Challenge barbecue, and I just want to show you something. This is really cool. You're probably not going to be able to, to read this because this is far away. Uh, this, is, this was something that was given to Resurrection Church. It is uh, an award of recognition for the impact that Resurrection Church has had on Teen Challenge this past year. And, and um, you know, what is in, really impressive about this is not simply that we have a, a plaque or a trophy that we get to hang up somewhere, but really what this represents is the overflow of generosity from this church that is impacting lives in this community, around this community, around the world because of the faithful living of God's saints in this church. Amen? That's a really big deal. Uh, We have an opportunity today to kind of... um, we call these one-offs in our sermon series. It's when we want to align sermon series to certain dates. And next week, we're going to go into the book of Ephesians for five weeks. We're actually going to spend five weeks really in just in chapter one because it's, it's really rich. Uh, in December, we're going to go into uh, a pretty cool uh, Christmas series all December long that we'll, we'll build toward Christmas. We've got a candlelight service coming. That's going to be pretty neat. And, uh, but today, we had an opportunity. Yes, I enjoy candlelight services too. Uh, today we had an opportunity just, just to do a standalone, and so I, I really wanted to look at this. I felt like in the life of our church, this was really uh, an opportune time to answer this question, and that is, do I really want to heal? Do I really want to heal? And so what I'm going to do, we're going to spend almost all of our time today in Colossians 3, 1 through 17, so if you're kind of getting ready, you can just you can tab over to Colossians 3, but I want to tell you the story about uh, earlier this year, this was March of this year, when I stepped down and I quit my position at Resurrection Church. You probably didn't know that story because that's a very quiet story. So uh, I got to the point of frustration uh, at church, and this came on a Monday after a meeting in which I had more frustration that I, I felt like enough was enough. Now, none of you are going to be able to relate to this, by the way. <clears throat> enough was enough. I was frustrated. I was tired. Um, I felt like there were far too many mischaracterizations of me, uh, too many wounds, too much conflict, too much anger, too many hurt people, and a general feeling of hopelessness and isolation. I'd lost confidence in God's work here at the church. I'd lost hope in the future of this church, and I'd lost conviction in my calling to this specific body. And so I remember calling Russ and resigning Russ has been a really good friend and mentor to me for a long time, and he asked me this. This is the wisdom of good friends. He said, are you emotional right now? I said, yeah. 
He said, we don't make good decisions when we're emotional. And I was like, no, we don't. He said, so you really shouldn't make any decisions right now until you spend some time seeking God. So reluctantly, I had to agree. You know, you're having these friends, you have to reluctantly agree to the things they say, because you know they're true, but you just don't feel like you want, you want to agree. You guys don't have to go through that. All right, it's just me, it's just me. So I, to be honest with you, weeks one and two and three of taking time off uh, didn't feel like any progress at all. I mean, I felt a little less emotional, but I didn't feel any less wounded, and I didn't feel any less hurt. And then somewhere between weeks three and four of taking some time off and seeking the Lord daily, I felt like the Lord began to really speak to me in, in almost an audible fashion, began to walk me through a process. And it started like this. He said, Daniel, who's in charge of your life? That's an easy answer for a believer. You are God. And he said, are you sure? Absolutely. With great certainty, you're in charge. They said, then why are you leaving? I said, because I can't see a path forward. I can't see a plan that works. I don't see people maturing into holiness and compassion. I can't even get people close to me to give me the benefit of the doubt. And God said, so you're leaving because you can't see how your efforts and your plans will work out. And you know where this is going. And I was like, yeah, that. And then he said this, who told you you needed to understand how I work? You ever play chess with God? I said, go read Job 38. Man, if you're struggling, you don't want to read Job 38. Because it's God answering Job after Job's complaints about how his plans aren't working out. I'll read you the first part of it. It says this, Job 38 verse one says, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know or stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk, and who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea and walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all of this. I was just going to stop there. I read all of 38 and then 39 and through the end of the, uh, the book. And I reread that passage uh, this week, and it just brought me to tears. Because how often have I sat in the arrogance of believing in my own power and my own understanding about the things of God? 
And how shaken has my confidence been when my expectations are not met? George Mueller would say, faith begins where man's power ends. What God revealed in me first was a lack of real faith in his power and his sovereignty. Now that's a wonderful intellectual uh, enterprise where... (laughs) You can know intellectually that God is in charge. We can look at the Bible and say, absolutely, I intellectually agree, but that doesn't make me any less wounded or any less angry. And that's where I landed about week three and a half of being away. I'm still wounded, I'm still angry, I still lack real trust in people in various areas of ministry and leadership in this church. It's one thing to know that I was called here. It's another thing entirely to heal and grow in the love of God's people so that I can work alongside everyone. So I knew I was hurting and I knew that God's will was clear that I needed to be back here. And the question was then before me, the question that I'm trying to answer today, which is, well then, do I really want to heal? Or how do I go from hurting to healing? Because there's a difference between simply hurting and then, God, and then allowing God to actually heal those hurts. No one has come through the last four years unscathed. No one. But it's our job to go from hurting to healing. How do we ensure that we aren't taking our wounds and running home or running away with them? How do we process through pain and trials and end up healthier, more tender, more loving, more compassionate, and more God-glorifying in the process? For that matter, how did the early Christians do it? Because if we're honest, they went through far worse trials and tribulations than we've gone through. Their government was 10 times worse than ours. Their cultural and ethnic tensions were far greater than ours. Their economic strains were substantially more overwhelming. Imprisonment, beating, starvation, martyrdom, false teachers, swindlers, people abandoning the faith. How did they deal with that and end up expressing such amazing unity with one another and joy in trials. And I believe that the next steps, the choices that they made, the choices that we get to make as we move toward healing are all found in a passage in Colossians 3, 1 through 17. So we're gonna spend our time there. I'm just gonna read through this and give you some observations that I believe the Lord gave me in in a very timely way. So here we are. Chapter three, verse one. If then you have been raised with Christ, so he's speaking to believers, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. If you are a believer, if I am a believer, our job, first and foremost, is to stop focusing on earthly things. If you don't know Jesus, you have no choice but to be overwhelmed by life's circumstances because you have no hope. But if you are a believer, you have a choice and we must exercise that choice. Why would we consistently wake up and put our, set our minds on things above? Well, a lot of reasons, but frankly, a lot of those reasons are reasons of the heart. I'm, I, when I read Colossians uh, 3, 1 through 3, I'm reminded of this him, you're going to recognize this. This was written in 1922. O oh soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim 
in the light of his glory and grace. Stop looking at earthly, thing, uh, earthly things to fix earthly problems. Gaze more intently at the Savior who is putting everything right, who will reconcile heaven and earth one day. It is your job and my job to set our mind right, even as we're hurting, even as we're trying to figure out what is the anchor point of our faith, to gaze at our Savior more intently. And it has a clarifying effect in our minds and our hearts to begin a process of healing by reminding us what is preeminent, what is most important. Verse three says this, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That is the hope that is eternal, the hope in the eternal, the hope in heaven. We repeat this to ourselves through the truths of scriptures, through hymns, through psalms, through encouragement again and again and again so that we will be reminded that we have hope in the midst of storms. And guys, there have been a lot of storms in the last few years. We'll get to the meat of this. This is five through 11. I want you to hear this. This is the instruction list. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion. Did you know you need to put to death passion? Evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. You can underline that in your Bible, which is idolatry. We're going to talk about that. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. A couple of notes. I, I, I think you could read this and go, I don't know, Daniel, how that is supposed to help me heal, although those things sound very good, but I just want to walk you through a couple of things you see in here. And the first is that it's, it says, stop lying to each other. Stop lying to each other. Now, I think a lot of us go, well, I'm, I, don't, I don't lie. I just, I just don't say everything. I don't lie, I just, you know, I'm just careful with my words. Listen to me, one of the problems we continue to have in American church is that we're not doing real well, we've gotten through a mess all week, we got a lot of wounds, we walk into church and go, everything's fine, brother. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to have wounds. This place was meant to be a hospital. You're supposed to bring those things here. You're not supposed to come here and act like they don't exist. How many of you have ever had the conversation where you know something's wrong and you're looking at her and you're going, hey, what's wrong? And she's like, everything's fine. <laughs> and you're like, no, it's not. No, it's not. It is absolutely okay to not be okay. In fact, healing can actually start and begin when we can get to the point where we acknowledge that it's not actually okay, that there is a wound, that there is a hurt, that there has been an offense, that I do feel bruised and beaten. 
It, it has to start with some honesty about where we're at. In fact, the Bible would tell you that that's actually pretty normal. In Psalm 34, 18 and 19, it says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. I just want you to hear that if you feel like you've gone through a lot, the Bible says you have and you will go through a lot. You, you have gone through a lot and you will go through a lot. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. Or as Jesus would say in John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. We can stop pretending that we're okay. We can stop pretending that this was supposed to be easy. It's okay to not be okay. Step one of moving toward healing is focusing on the eternal, reminding ourselves of the hope of the eternal. But step two is simply acknowledging that there's a wound. When we refuse to acknowledge the wound, we tend to react to small things in big ways and no one around us really understands why we're doing it. You guys have had that situation where someone's just freaking out about something that you think is the smallest thing ever and you can't understand the emotional reaction to what's going on. We did some training during our retreat this, this last weekend where we talked about how stressors, when they're not dealt with well, can turn into trauma. And when you end up with enough trauma that you're, you're not dealing with well, your reactions, your emotional reactions to sometimes the smallest things seem completely out of bounds. And people kind of look at you and go, well, I don't even know what's going on right now. And that's typically when we're working through woundedness and we're not doing it very well. Church was intended to be a hospital. How many of you have talked to someone before? Uh, you just, you're not seeing them. They're not around. You're wondering where they've been. And when you really dig in, what you found is something, something terrible happened in their life. There was, a, there was a disaster. There was messiness. There was a relational break. There was, there was woundedness. There was sin. And so they decided that until they fixed that, they couldn't come back to church. That's not what we're here for. We're not here so that you can get cleaned up and look good and come in and we can all pretend that we're doing really well together. We're here to drag all of those wounds in the door so that we can encourage one another, admonish one another, love one another, uplift one another, help each other run the race that's hard to run with endurance together. Church is a hospital, not a museum. There's a really weird phrase in those verses we just read. We, we read through these things that we're supposed to put off, and then we get this really interesting thing there. I think it's in verse five. It says, covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, I, I, I sat on that for a little while. Covetousness. When you think about coveting something, this is in the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. When you think about coveting something, I don't think any of us think about idolatry necessarily. It's just, it seems like a weird link in these verses. But I sat there for a little while, and I thought about this to covet something is to have an inordinate desire for something. In fact, an inordinate desire that because its desire grows, at some point it gets reprioritized in our life and it actually begins to take the place of God. It becomes equal or greater than our desire for God. 
And so when that occurs, when we take that thing that we really desire, that we really want, and we begin to misprioritize that thing that we desire, and it begins to take the place of God in our life, it goes from simply being covetousness to idolatry. We find ourselves sometimes accidentally worshiping something that's not God. Now, I think it's easy to read through this, especially when you're wounded, and think, I'm not doing that. I'm not coveting anything. I don't have an inordinate desire for something that's not of God. But let me just tell you that in the midst of my hurting, in the midst of my wounded, what I really was revealed in my heart was actually a lot of coveting. And it, it stopped me from actually moving forward and healing. You see, I wanted my own way more than I wanted God to move. I wanted God to move, but I wanted him to move in the way that I wanted him to move. And when I got stuck on this method, that God actually has to work this way, and if he doesn't work this way, that I'm not really gonna be satisfied, that I'm, I'm actually coveting this, this method or this medium in which I saw God move, not so much God, and when I begin to covet this, this method or this medium or this style or this feeling instead of actually just God, I'm actually worshiping now an idol that's not God. How many of you have had a really great experience with God moving in a powerful and vibrant and passionate way in a small group in your life? Anybody? I have. How many of you have had God move in a passionate and vibrant, just a powerful way in a Bible study? I have. How about God moving in a vibrant and substantial way where you get to see the fruit of the Spirit in a Sunday school class? What about in a men's or a women's retreat? How about during just phenomenal worship in which you just feel like you can, you can visibly almost see God moving? And to this day, if you play uh, that song by Hillsong, Who You Say I Am, I'm probably gonna start ugly crying. Because I just it, it takes me back to memories of God moving. When we're hurting and we want the hurt and the pain to go away, we have this overwhelming need for the presence of God. We want, we want to see his love channeled back to us through believers, encouraging us and lifting us up. And we want, to, we want to recreate a great experience where we've seen God move in this powerful way. But instead of actually looking and, and desperately wanting God, it's very easy in our woundedness to get distorted and to decide because we, we remember where God was vibrant and powerful, the way we can recreate that is to recreate the, the method or the circumstances around how God moved. And if we just do that, then we can orchestrate a move of God. You can't orchestrate moves of God. Moves of God are organic. You can only, ex you can ex experience his vibrancy, you can experience his power, you can experience his healing, and then most of us in our woundedness, and this is what I found myself doing, say, if it happens this way at this time with this people, and this is covetousness, this is idolatry. That's what I found myself doing. If we could just get the formula just right, if we could have just the right small groups, if we could have just the right men's ministry, if we could have just the right retreats, if we could have, if we, you know what? God would move again if you just opened downtown. God would move again if you would just sing the right songs. 
God would move again if you would just fill in the blank. And what we're really doing is we're saying fill in the blank because I remember when God moved. I remember when he was real and powerful in my life. And right now I'm hurting and I just want the hurt to go away. So can we go recreate that time where God moved so he'll move again? And it's me trading in the power and work of God for a formula because I want God in a box. I don't want the messy, crazy, wild, unpredictable God of the Bible. I want a measured, definable, neat God that I remember in my rose-colored glasses. Because that's what pain does. It distorts us to forgetting that God is God. You don't put God in a box. You don't tell God when and how and where he's going to move. Read just about any story in the Bible where that's attempted. It doesn't go well because we don't orchestrate moves of God. They're organic and they happen when men's hearts turn toward God and push themselves into a lowly place of humility in desperate need for him and say, God, just show up. I don't care how you do it. And then in response to people pursuing God in desperation, God shows up. Because you will never get God on your terms. You get God on God's terms. That's what God was telling Job. And it is my folly, it is my arrogance to think otherwise, to in March sit around and lament that God's not showing up because he's not showing up the way I want him to. Step three is to stop telling God how to renew you. You're not God. That's a tough pill to swallow. It was a tough pill to chew through as God reminded me that he's God and I'm not. What then do we do? Because we just read a whole list of things from Colossians 3 of things not to do. So what do we spend our time on? We, we're supposed to take this stuff off. We're supposed to take off anger. We're supposed to take off wrath. And I, I would submit to you that Honestly, over the course of the last four years, we've had lots of reasons to have anger and wrath, amen? I don't know a lot of people that have made it through a tough church merger and then a really divisive election cycle and then a global pandemic. And then the loss of a senior pastor and not had reasons to have some wrath and some anger and some hurts and some wounds. Or to take off slander. That never happens in the church, though. We just call that uh, venting. Or <clears throat> to take off obscene talk. But what are we to put on? As God's chosen ones, this is verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Here we go. Here's your list. Compassionate hearts. Hearts that break for one another. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. These are very hard things to put on when you're hurting, amen? Amen. Verse 13 gives us the Gives us the gut punch of what we got to go do if we really want to move forward, healing a wound. Verse 13 says this. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, 
so you also must forgive. The the most difficult part of that statement is that the standard for forgiveness is Jesus. Right. Because I'm God's chosen child, I'm to bear the burdens of others, and then I'm to forgive offenses before someone apologizes. It's hard enough to apologize when you do ask for forgiveness. I mean, it's hard enough to forgive someone when when they do apologize, but to forgive them when they're not even sorry? Who do I need to ask forgiveness of? I read this, I'm sitting at home. Who do I need to ask forgiveness of? Who do I need to forgive? Yes but who do I need to ask forgiveness of? Man, the more I sat in that, the longer the list got. Maybe you have a list. I don't know. Maybe you have some people you need to ask forgiveness of. I don't know. But I had some folks. I had individuals in my life that I had to go and talk to. And then the more I thought about it, the more I realized I have a whole church I need to ask forgiveness of because I'm in leadership. I know that I've harmed people in the congregation, in wounds and in pain. Hurt people hurt people. Hurt people will hurt people. That is the way we work as humans in our flesh. And so I started to just go through the number of conversations individually have, but the more I I begin to think about this, the more I begin to realize I've made a lot of mistakes. And the wonderful thing about repentance in the Bible is that apologies and repentance and sorrow, they are freeing. They are free. We serve a God that welcomes it and loves it and encourages it. I don't know if this needs to be said, but I'll make sure everybody here has heard it. If I were merging these two churches again today, four years after we've done it, my plan would be quite a bit different. It'd be a whole lot slower. I spent a lot more time with elders and church leaders before we made any changes to make sure we had better unity. We had worked on our leadership developed to be much better leaders than we were. I'd have found little phrases that had snuck through from our previous churches and I would have put those to death before we started making changes. One of those that you've probably heard that bothered a lot of us was, you need to get on the bus. You need to get on the bus, the bus is leaving the station. Uh, That may have been an appropriate statement for a church of really young, brand new Christians who needed to figure out that they needed to get on a bus. But a hurting church going through a pandemic and a merger, that's not an appropriate analogy. The church isn't so much a bus as it is a train station. And if you miss the train because it leaves the station because you're wounded and you're late and you're hurting and you're undecided, the great thing about a church and a train station is there's another one coming in about 15 minutes. I would have stopped saying things like, if you don't like the things that are going on, this might not be the church for you. Because that invalidates God's call on your life. Because if I'm honest, I didn't like lots of things that were going on here. And God said, well, I called you here anyways, so suck it up. Okay. I made a lot of messes in the last four years, and it's the grace of God that we saw in his providence and in his blessing, the work that he has done in our church in that time. 
The wonderful thing about the bride of Christ, which is the church, is that God continues to do amazing things through messy churches because there are no not messy churches. If God had to wait for perfect churches to do work, well, it'd be pretty empty, wouldn't it? It's an absolute beauty that the grace of God works through the mess of us. Who needs forgiveness in your life? Who do you need to go and approach and apologize to? Listen to how Paul will wrap up this thought as he comes through forgiving one another in verse 14. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The call of the church is not only to not be perfect, not only to be this messy place that grants a great deal of forgiveness and bears with the burdens of one another, it's that in the context of how the church is built and how Paul explains what we're to do with one another, it is actually the intention of the church that you would bring in your wounds in through the doors every Sunday morning and actually heal together like one body. You see, it's very difficult to grant forgiveness to someone when you don't see them ever because you're at home trying to heal. It's very difficult to apologize to someone when you have run away with your wound. You're not actually bringing it back. The, the pews of the church were intended to be the hospital beds in which the healing happened. And in the context of the last 18 months, what I've observed in the, in the life of our church is that as people have realized they have a wound, instead of bringing it in the doors and working on it and granting forgiveness and bearing with each other's burdens and, and treating this church like hospital beds, we've, we've run off and decided we will hold on to our wound at home. And the thing about a wound when it's not being dealt with, when it's not being cleaned out, cl cleaning a wound out, if you've ever, where's, where's Elder Kent? He just had one of these, he, he had Sucky, remember Sucky? Sucky uh, was this uh, machine that they gave him to help him clean out a wound. The thing about cleaning out a wound when you go to a hospital is it's very painful to clean that wound out. But if you don't clean that wound out, what ends up happening is that maybe some of that immediate pain of cleaning it out, maybe you stave that off, but over time that thing gets infected and it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse and you may lose a limb, right? It, it can be deadly to take a wound and leave it unaddressed in an ongoing fashion. Instead, the church was intended to be the place where we brought the wounds in the door, not to lash out at each other with them, but to allow them to be healed by the salve that is loving one another. Bind everything together in perfect love. That was the intention of the church. And I've spent the last few weeks running down people that I, I haven't seen in a long time, asking them what's going on, and most of the answers are, everything's fine. No, it's not. No, it's not. There's a wound. There's a hurt. Something hasn't been dealt with. Don't hide with it. Come heal together. You can hurt alone or you can heal together. 
This was intended to be a place to heal together as one body. That means things for us individually and it means things for us corporately. Individually, that means some, some introspection as we pray through our own hurts and our own hangups and our own lack of forgiveness and our own places where we've been holding on to something and our own areas where we've been coveting God to work in a specific and certain way and we're kind of angry at him that he hasn't. It means granting forgiveness to people, some of whom have probably left and we won't have an opportunity to do that in person, but it means granting forgiveness to individuals because the standard is Christ's forgiveness of us. And it's how we deal with wounds. It's how we clean out wounds. They are painful to clean out, but they're healthy on the other side. We have some people in our lives that got really hurt and they took their wounds and they ran away. Some of whom we may have an opportunity to see again and work with. Some of whom we're gonna have to grant forgiveness to without ever seeing them. And we also have people in our church today that are still wounded and they're still hurt and I just want you to know it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to have a wound. It's okay to have hurts. It's actually kind of normal. I don't know a pastor that I've talked to this year that doesn't have a congregation that is largely hurting. Just want you to hear that. For the first time in the history of the United States, less than 50% of the population attends church on Sundays. We just set a record. Congratulations. Why? Man, we have run from the church instead of run to the church. Corporately, it means normalizing wounds and healing and being okay with that happening in the context of a Sunday morning because that was the intention. It's our job to do. And I think there's one last step in healing that we, you and I can work on, and that's this. Uh, and you see this happen again and again as the authors in the New Testament are encouraging the churches in the New Testament. Uh, what we really desire as God is working in us and rooting these things out and healing these wounds is to just catch a glimpse of him at work again. If you would just pray, God, would you just, would you just allow me the privilege of seeing you at work in the lives of men and women who are far from you, who are hurting, because there's nothing as inspiring as healing, as seeing God at work, however God chooses to work, now how we want him to work, catching just a glimpse of what he's doing. And in God's grace, he began to show me how he was at work in the lives of people in our church, people that have been impacted by our church. I, I don't think it was at all outside of God's design that I walked in this morning and they handed me a plaque for the impact this church has had on Teen Challenge. To remind us not only of the things eternal, but of the eternal impact, the eternal kingdom work that is happening every single day because of the work of the saints through this church as we submit to the work of the Father, however he would guide us, in whatever way that looks like, just grateful for the privilege to be used by him. We're going to be working on a campaign that you're gonna hear about over the course of the next couple weeks. 
And it's a, a way we're gonna try to help give you some, some tools and some guidance to connect with the people in your life that are around you that you're running into that are far from God or that are hurting in this season because it's not exclusively church members that are hurting, believe it or not. We're in a culture of isolation right now. There's a lot of hurt. And we're going to spend some time over the course of the next few weeks. You'll, you'll, you'll see these things coming out in email and in text and on social media where we're going to uh, offer you something you can join in on. They'll give you some guidance on how to connect with people that are really hurting, that are really isolated, that are far from God. Um, that God has granted you influence in their lives. And we wanna offer you some ways you might steward that influence for kingdom impact. So you're gonna see that. But here's what we're gonna do right now. We've got, um, we're gonna have a, a time of response, just a, just a song that we're gonna sing that gives us some opportunity to pray, talk to the Lord, talk about some of the things that we've been through, pray for our church, pray for those here that have been hurt, pray for those that are here today, pray for those that are not here, and pray for the impact that God will have through this church as we move forward. And then we're gonna do communion, and Elder Don's gonna come up and he's gonna lead us in uh, that holy ordinance and we're gonna have an opportunity to remember our savior and why we do all the things that we do and why we have a hope in the midst of pain. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you are not far from us when we are brokenhearted. God, that, that trial and struggle is not something that you're unfamiliar with, but rather, God, we have a high priest who, is, <laughs> who can relate to us, who is familiar with all of the temptations and the struggles and the trials and the tribulation and the struggle of life, God. And you desire to embrace us in the midst of our pain, to love us in the midst of our failure, God, that at, at, the, at the center of Christ's heart is a lowliness, a gentleness to put his arms around us and to love us through our hurts and pains. God, we, we want to heal in areas where we just feel stuck. We want God to model to an outside hopeless world what it looks like to have a hope so good that there's no choice but to walk in healing and in, in hope of a future in which you're sitting at the right hand of God and all things have been reconciled. God, help us to grant forgiveness like you've forgiven us. God, help us to apologize and repent and bind us together, God, in unity, in perfect love, to be a representation of your kingdom here on earth inside these church doors and in our community. In Jesus' name, amen.